Let's kick off with a little bit of a quote. Maybe you can tell me who said this. Tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. King Lear and Shakespeare. No, creeps in the petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, and signifying nothing. Shakespeare is correct, but Macbeth. Yeah, yeah. Sounds pretty similar to Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Uh, an actor wandering about, fretting on the stage for just a moment, and then it's all over, full of sound, full of fury, and signifying nothing. What's the point? Quite strange, isn't it, to open up the Christian Bible, the Jewish Bible, and find here, smack bang in the middle, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? Try to be good, try to work hard, practice those random acts of kindness, hoping they'll return back upon you. If only we could unite together then, we'd change the world. The power of love or the power of imagination or the power of education or whatever it might be. And then we get this jolt shouting out to us from Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do we gain, Ecclesiastes asks. What do we ultimately improve? What's actually new? What's really satisfying? What will be remembered? It's a bit of a slap in the face, this book. It's a strange one to find in the Bible. It's a bit of a downer, really. Like, is, is Ecclesiastes a good hang? Like, do you want Ecclesiastes to come over? You've got a few people, get, get some pizzas, and let's bring Ecclesiastes over. <laughs> bit of a downer, you know. <laughs> Who invited this guy? The Christian immune system struggles to react to this a little bit as well. The cheerful Christian immune system. We almost want to push Ecclesiastes out the door with a loud shout of Jesus loves me this I know because the Bible tells me so. Every day just read, pray and obey Ecclesiastes. Out, out. <laughs> sure, maybe for the atheist, but for the Christian, what this, this doesn't seem to fit. You know what? Sometimes the unwelcome and the shocking and the unexpected is the stuff we really ought to welcome. And actually Ecclesiastes is an awesome book because it's so jolting and jarring and strange and unexpected. It's a kind of wisdom that rattles us. A kind of wisdom that does bring us down from a simple happy high that confronts us. As Ecclesiastes chapter 12 puts it, the words of the wise are like goads. They're like spurs. They're unsettling. So what is the Ecclesiastes project? The words of the teacher as the chapter begins. A book begins. Son of David, king in Jerusalem. This teacher, this preacher, this sage, this professor. Who is it? Well, we're told the son of David, king in Jerusalem in verse 1. Or down in verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that's done under heaven. Uh, I've seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. Verse 16, uh, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied myself to understanding and folly, and also uh, and wisdom, and also madness and folly, and discovered this too was chasing after the wind. Or again, down in chapter two and verse nine, chapter two and verse nine, we read about uh, I became greater. Th 
far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Now, what's unclear, and people have different views on this, is, is this a historical report uh, of the kind of verbatim teachings of a king in Jerusalem, the son of David? Could it be Solomon speaking about um, uh, his wisdom and his reflections, his discoveries, pushing the outer limits of wisdom? Or is it a, is a, is it a literary wisdom book using a literary device? Uh, the words of a teacher who adopts the persona of a Solomon-like figure, the wise king figure, in order to take us on a kind of thought experiment. There, are, I mean, some of the reasons for that is the, the Hebrew words get used, don't date so comfortably to the reign of Solomon, uh, and some context questions that, that don't maybe perhaps quite fit. Like for him to say, I was wiser than all who'd ruled in Jerusalem before me, there was David and Saul, it's not like there were many, at least amongst the, the, the Israelite kings ruling before him. Questions like this. Personally, I'm inclined to say that, no, this does have roots in the teaching and the life and the experience of Solomon. Um, but that perhaps it's been heavily crafted and edited to reach its final form, as we have it now. This teacher, this professor, this king even if it is Solomon's experience speaking here, is undertaking a project to discover what has meaning, what lasts, what can be gained. This word to the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What does man gain, verse 3 of chapter 1, from all his labour and toil under the sun? Verse 14, I've seen all things done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. What is twisted can't be straightened. What's lacking can't be added up. Verse 17 again, I applied myself to understanding and wisdom. I applied myself to madness and folly. And I learned in all this, it's chasing after the wind. With much wisdom comes much sorrow, much knowledge, more grief. It's all, there's a vapour. That's kind of the word that meaningless here is, what's translated for us as meaningless in English. Perhaps it's an idea of vapour or fog or... Uh, kind of a futility. As, as he says, there's no gain. There's, um, there's something twisted that can never be fully straightened out. There's something uh, lacking that can never be added up to completion. There's a... And so in the first six chapters of the book, some have said, often the question is, what can be gained? What can be gained? What can be gained? And the answer seems to be, well, nothing. And in the second half of the book, from chapter 7, the question shifts a little more to what can we know? What can we know? What can we know? And again, the answer seems to be, to a certain extent, nothing. That there's under the sun a, a inability to get it all straightened out, an inability to get it all added up, an inability to really make gain, to really know it all. And so Ecclesiastes says, you know what? It's not as simple and easy and reliable as study hard, eat well, keep fit, read widely, be good to your mum, floss. It's not we can definitely change the world and make things certainly better. Ecclesiastes says, yeah, look, maybe. But ultimately, what do you gain? All the labour, all the study, all the lobbying, all the saving up, all the... Uh, ups and all the downs and all the struggles. There's no absolute and ultimate progress, no ultimate gain. There's a, um, a theological writer called Derek Kidner, who, K-I-D-N-E-R, Derek 
Echidna, not Echidna, Derek Echidna. Um, and he wrote a lot of books in a, in a little series, the Tyndale Commentary series, um, uh, like very short little books, affordable books. But if you ever find something by Derek Kidner, it's worth getting just because he's so good in writing. With, like his English is beautiful and his ability to put a lot of theological depth into very short books is really great. He wrote on Ecclesiastes and here's what he had to say. Here's, here's Derek Echidna. <laughs> he says, in Ecclesiastes at bottom, um, uh, sorry, in the, uh, in the Bible at bottom, we can find the axiom of all the wise men of the Bible that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the teacher in Ecclesiastes plans to bring us to that point, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, last of all, when we're desperate for an answer. There are hints of it in passing through Ecclesiastes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There are hints of it, but his main approach is from the other end. The resolve to see how far a man will get with no such basis. (laughs) He puts himself and he puts us... So we're reading Ecclesiastes. He puts us in the shoes of the humanist or the secularist, not the atheist. But atheism was hardly a going concern in his day. But the person who starts his thinking from man and the observable world and knows God only from a distance. This, of course, is asking for complications. There'll be tension between the writer's deepest self as a man of conviction with a faith to share and his provisional self as a man groping his way by the light of nature. So it's like a project where he's saying, come with me, join me, walk into the shoes of a person just living on this level for everyday life, the day-to-day. Let's go into that perspective where God seems far off. And let's look, as the phrase puts it, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. And in that point of view, let's see what we can see. Provisional self exploring things from this point of view. So that's the Ecclesiastes project. Let's now join in it first by looking at the natural world. Chapter one takes a big kind of a poem looking at the natural world, the cycles, the repetitions, the constancy, and kind of the the futilities again, the lack of gain seen in the natural world. The the the. Well, let's read verse 3. What does man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? Chapter 1, verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. That puts human life in perspective dwarfs the human lifespan look at your life look at the whole history of of uh europeans in australia look at the whole history of human beings of any sort in australia and hold that up against the agelessness of hastings caves or something which has just been there indifferently drip drip dripping as generations come and generations go and generations come and generations go and it all just carries on around us. On and on, round and round, over and over. As you read the poem, it's almost as if it's trying to help you feel a bit exhausted. (laughs) It's almost trying to give you a sense of a weariness perhaps or a grind. And as it paints this picture, 
It says, what's the game? What's the progress? What's the meaning? What's the purpose? What's the, is there anything that's not vapour? All the pains, all the joys, all the works, all the struggles, all the hopes, all the fears, all the discoverings is castles in the sand, tasting after the wind. Here's uh, from not just a secularist but an atheist, the famous atheist Bertrand Russell. Here's his summary of, of an atheist perspective on life and nature. He says, here's my, here's my kind of manifesto. Here's my view of the world. That man is the product of causes that have no prevision of the end they are achieving. That man's origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve individual life beyond the grave. That all labours of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius... All of that are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Again, Bertrand Russell, good hang. Do you want it like, you're having board games night? Do you invite Bertrand Russell around? Yeah, maybe not. Um, but what's he helping us to see? He's challenging us to go, when you look just from this perspective, just from this point of view, zoom back from the marvels of human genius and passion and experience, what's it all about, he's asking. It's the shocking, unyielding despair if this is all there is. And so the teacher turns from the natural world to human experience. Let's now look at what he has to say about human experience. Again, remember, the particular focus is kind of pausing on that deeper self of um, the fear of God as beginning of wisdom and instead beginning under the sun. So you see that verse 3. What does man gain from his labour at which he toils under the sun? Or verse 9. What has been will be again. What will be done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. What have I seen all things, verse 14, under the sun? And they are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. This world, here and now, a world considered without God's eternal plans and special revelation. A world considered from the point of view of human experience. That's the all things and, and the all words that he's considering. And he says, look from that point of view, there's never contentment, there's never enough, it's all... Verse 8, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, the ear never its fill of hearing. What has been be again, what's been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything which one can say, look, there is something new. It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. There's no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. 4 verse 8 picks up a similar kind of theme. There was a man, all alone, he had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless and miserable business. Or 5, verse 10. 
Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And to what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes upon them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether he eats much or little. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. You climb the ladder, only to realise there's always someone higher than you as you break through the clouds. You enter into the inner circle. And then you find out there's another inner circle within that one. <laughs> you master your sport or your musical instrument. And then there's that person with just natural flair. Or you move to New York City and the buskers in the subway are better than you and everyone you went through the conservatorium with. I listened to a TED talk once about a guy called, what was his name, Ben Saunders, who was like an um, uh, Antarctic and Arctic kind of uh, explorer type dude, bro. And, and, and he, he spoke really frankly about not really quite being able to make sense of why he did what he did. Uh, it's like a drug addiction, he says. I sacrifice my money, my friendships, my family in order to drag heavy things around cold places. <laughs> Do you really think getting the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the house, the fame, the money, the awards will really make you happy? Really? <laughs> Just read a biography of anyone famous, why don't you? <laughs> That'll disabuse you of that notion. No novelty, no progress. I mean, look, it's, it's, you might have read chapter one, and if you're a real pedantic type, you go, well, there have been new things. You know, double-decker couch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, rock and roll music, constitutional monarchy, cheeseburgers, the poodle. The concept, mathematical concept of zero, espresso coffee, Mormonism, the internet, atomic energy. Like there are new things. The double decker couch, <laughs> the meat shake. Um, <laughs> you got the Lego Movie reference, not the Thirty Rock reference. That's all right. Um, but look, first, it's a poem, okay? It's a poem. Let it be a poem. Let the poem be a poem. Um, but also, it's talking on a higher level of abstraction than that. It's talking on the level of, um, uh, yes, humans invent things and we use them for good, or just mind-numbing trivia, or, um, you know, I mean, the internet connects people together, facilitates distance learning and, and, and all sorts of access to knowledge, including the spread of the gospel. Mind-numbing trivia, trivia that we can spend forever watching people fall off bikes into mud, you know, and, and suddenly the, the whole evening is gone. Sounds quite good, actually. Mitchell's going, yeah, that sounds good. Sign, <laughs> sign me up. I'll do that for an evening. You know, small animals riding on top of tortoises. And I just, there's endless pictures of these and videos. Um, or it can be used for horrific abuse, can't it? The radicalising of people into all sorts of violent agendas or the spread of pornography and terrorism and so on and so forth. But in all of that, there's, in a sense, nothing ultimately new, no ultimate progress or gain or meaning. There's new problems, new shapes to old problems. Did, did you see what I mean? And he also says no memory, verse 11. There's no remembrance of men of old, and even those who yet to come won't be remembered by those who have followed, dead and forgotten. In a way, you could say Ecclesiastes, in part, is an extended meditation on Genesis chapter 3. On the fall, the curse, death. But no gain, because we'll all die. That's why there's no, it's meaningless. Very few people are remembered at all, ever. Very few. And then there are a whole lot who are remembered, get buildings named after them, 
And if you ask your average person who the person was, who the building's named after, what are they famous for, a lot of people will go, well, I mean, obviously Stanley Berber is famous to have a lecture theatre named after him at Utah. Obviously, he's famous for having a lecture theatre named after him. That's what he did. <laughs> I, guess he built, I guess he built the lecture theatre, which is why it's famous. <laughs> so quickly it comes like that, doesn't it? You kind of go, I don't know. Of all the books, all the plays, all the discoveries, all the achievements, a puny amount is remembered, and even those that are remembered. Should we get to the culture again? I don't know if you ever had to memorise poems at school. Here's one I had to memorise, but I'll read it out for sake. To spare my embarrassment of brain freeze. Ozymandias, do you know this one? I met a traveller from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, like a, a stone face from a statue, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that the sculptor all those passions read well, which yet survived stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, the hand that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains. <laughs> Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. <laughs> Look on my works. Uh, what works, dude? <laughs> Do you mean the broken face in the sand or what? I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. So quickly, it all goes. It's a heavy book. Where do we find meaning then? You know, Ecclesiastes meets us in our experience because sometimes we do get this kind of feeling and we feel these kinds of things and think these kinds of things and meet others who feel and think these kinds of things and God meets us in that and says, yeah, there's a reason why you feel and think that. There's a truth to it, actually. And there's a weird kind of comfort in that, actually. God sympathising us with us in our despair. More than just sympathising with us, there is something good and wise in despair. Ecclesiastes 7 says it's the fool that goes to the party. It's the wise person who goes to the funeral. Because we are all going to die. Let's live wisely in the real world. Let's think about reality. What do we gain? Is it all just... Instagram photos and new shoes and Ikea and certificates and what do I actually gain? Yes, we need optimism as human beings, as psych psychological creatures. We need optimism. We need to just switch off and not think deep thoughts sometimes. We need the empty things, the little things, the trivial things, the little animals riding on tortoises and guys falling off bikes into mud. The, the, and actually Ecclesiastes speaks of that. That's another refrain in the book. It speaks about death and meaningless, and it also speaks about simple joys. So 2 verse 24, a man could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too is from the hand of God. 3 verse 13, uh, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toil. This is a gift from God. It goes all the way through the book. 322, 5.18, 8.15, 9.7, 11.7. All the way through the book it says, yeah, actually, yeah, on a simple level, there is something good in finding simple pleasure. Even that bit we read about how the, the person who works hard just goes to sleep at night and sleeps. 
there's something kind of good about that. Working hard, going to sleep, sleep. Pleasure is good. Sadness isn't great in and of itself if you wallow in it all the time. We can only have so much capacity for it. We can't carry around the philosophical burden of, as Bertrand Russell puts it, unyielding despair all day long. It'd be unhealthy to try, pompous to try. And in the end, if you do try, you end up being inconsistent. Every goth and nihilist and pessimist and deep, dark person you meet is always inconsistent somewhere along the line. There's something they love. There's something they care about. There's some cause they protest for. So don't dwell on it all the time. Go to bed, watch some goofy YouTube, get some exercise and so on. However, wisdom does force us to ask the question and face the question. And maybe a way of thinking about it is there are seasons for it. There are seasons when you pause and step back with, with Ecclesiastes and ask these questions. And where your mates, or you here who aren't Christians, or you've got mates who aren't Christians and haven't thought about these things, need to also stop and step back and actually pause for a second and say, but what's it all for? The concert and the travel and the study and the parties and the friends and the TV and the, the nachos and whatever else, but what's it all about? The politics and the causes and the rights and the protests and the, the next thing to learn and achieve and improve, but what's it ultimately all about? There's a seasons when you should stop and ask, what's the point? What do I gain? What's it all about? What's the meaning of life? The famous French philosopher and writer Albert Camus said the great philosophical question is why not commit suicide? <clears throat> His point being, we've got to ask the question, what's life about? What's the meaning of life? I'm not saying, and Christians aren't saying, that in reality, day to day, an atheist can't be a nice person and feel a sense of meaning and purpose. That's not what we're saying. As if your average atheist always feels depressed and always just kind of kicks puppies and things. No, no. On an experiential level, everybody can find some sense of meaning and reason for kindness and so on. The point is rather that when you zoom back and ask the question, but why... The Christian has a reason for why they have a sense of meaning and why they strive to do good. Whereas the most honest atheists, like Bertrand Russell in the quote I read, say, actually, to be honest, on an ultimate level, if there's no ground of meaning and purpose, then there is no meaning and purpose, including moral ground for our lives and our actions. So look, this is the world we live in. Ecclesiastes is saying, you, you and I, all of us, this is the world we live in. And if I want to be both happy and wise, not just a silly doofus, not just a miserable poet, but happy and wise, I've got to know what I'm facing. This is the world we live in. This is the world we study in. This is the world we fall in love in. This is the world we preach the gospel in. A world that from a human point of view is meaningless and futile, where we gain nothing, where we die, where we're forgotten. Look, uh, here's how James puts it, the brother of Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, right at the very end of the New Testament, this cool little practical book with these profound words, James chapter 4, verse uh, 14. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears a little while and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this and that. How do you live in a world that Ecclesiastes shows us? Well, prepare for disappointment. Prepare, beware of idealism, that you can fix everything. Hold things loosely. What's your life? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. You're a mist that appears for... You're like the Bridgewater Jerry, the big fog that goes down the Derwent River. Seems like this tower that blots out the eastern suburbs. And then it's gone by 10am. There will be some of us whose life will be ruined by shattered dreams, whose souls might be tempted to be turned bitter by disappointments. And we guard against that by not being absorbed by our ambitions so we lose ourselves, Or defining ourselves by what we do or who we look after and love. Or don't believe our own press so that we're convinced that uh, our cause will succeed this year, next year, and be consumed by our, whatever our agenda is. That we don't believe the lie. If only I had X, if only I had Y, if only I had Z, then I'd actually be happy. That's how we live life well. And actually, even in Christian life and ministry. We can't know who will become Christians and when. We can't know when a ministry will succeed and, and, and how. I was once in a meeting where, where a song, I don't know if you know this song, this song was sung, and I, I honestly had to stop singing. I just couldn't sing the song. Uh, the song goes, we're meant to as a whole community stand up and sing wherever we are in the world, at whatever time and place, I see a generation rising up to take the place with selfless faith. I see a revival starting as we pray and seek. We're on our knees. And I just went, I don't know if I do. I hope. That's not, that's, that's not for me to say. I don't sing it into existence. A generation rising up with selfless faith, a revival starting as we pray and seek, we're on our knees. Sometimes. Sometimes. But sometimes it's a season of a generation cowering away and a revival stuffing out and faithfulness in hard times. And that's to God's glory too. So we need humility, we need realism, we need contentment, we need a sense of humour. In a sense, you could say one of the things this grim Ecclesiastes stuff gives us is that slogan, hard words make soft people. That these hard realities make us soft and humble, soft and content, soft and faithful, soft and realistic. But in a final word... Of course, Ecclesiastes also drives us to look beyond, drives us past this life under the sun. There's got to be something more. It forces us to say, this can't be all there is. There's got to be a way to straighten things out. There's got to be a way to add things up. There's got to be a way beyond death where we can gain, where we do know. We can't ultimately live with no ultimate hope. And, and that's where Ecclesiastes is at the very end brings us. So as, I, as we close, let me read to you from the very end of the book. He says, look, the teacher was wise. The teacher taught all sorts of proverbs, right and true things. The words of the wise are like goads, firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. But now all has been heard, Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13. Here is the conclusion of the matter. 
Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. In other words, the ultimate meaning is above the sun, not in this world, not in nature, not in human achievement, in God. God's existence, God's purposes, God's ultimate final purpose of judgment and salvation. To trust God, to love God, to obey God, to seek God's rescue from judgment to come beyond this life. That's what gives meaning. Purpose, shape. As I struggle through this life, I look to that hope. That's what straightens what's crooked. That's what makes up what's lacking. And the Christian hope ultimately points to how, in God's judgment, there is actually also mercy. That in Jesus Christ himself we find the forgiveness, we find the, um, uh, the eternal hope, the eternal life in his resurrection that we will share in when he returns. But as you look to that final hope, don't lose the stuff we've spent most of our time on because we're still in this world now, that's the point, yeah? We're still in this world now living in all the frustrations and the struggles and the difficulties and the challenges. And so with that hope to come, we also got to have this wisdom, this realism, uh, and, and also even just the, the wisdom about the simple joys along the way as we're also sustained by this great hope to come. We're out of time, guys. So um, if you've missed any of the happyology stuff and want to get into it, it's on our podcast and on our website. It'd be worth going back through and picking up some of the ones you might have missed. We'll see you at Breakfast Bible Study next Tuesday at uh, the All Together Gathering.